Good morning, everybody, to the first strategy podcast of 2024. How are you? I hope you enjoyed the break. Markets seem to be behaving themselves. Now, in order to step up the podcast this year, I have decided to add a little educational piece at the end of every strategy podcast. We'll see how this develops, assuming I have time each day, of course. But you'll find today an interesting story about a Greek client with one thumb dealing in Qantas warrants. Look forward to that. This is general advice only, not to be confused with advice suited to your personal financial circumstances. Right, I thought I'd start this year looking at the post-it notes for 2024. What are those tiny wee little messages we'd like to see on our trading screens today that would make this year a lot more simple and profitable. Last year, of course, it was pretty obvious. The post-it notes were, we're going to have a good January, then sell everything, don't come back until November the 1st, and then buy everything. The other post-it note last year would have been that the US big tech recovery will start on the 1st of January. The Nasdaq fell 34% in 2022, rose 43% in 2023. So if you're looking to make money last year, Big tech really was the big trade, and it is tantalizing to wonder what are those simple messages that are going to work this year. Apart from big tech, last year would have been sit in cash from the 1st of February to the 1st of November. Other post-it notes last year were things like don't bother with lithium. And as I look at the lithium price, it's in my section today, as I look at the lithium price, it is going sideways to down still. I really wouldn't be buying into a resurrection of lithium this year. At this point, you're doing little more than hoping. There's no evidence, but everybody's ready to jump on hot themes like lithium. Although at this point, it's a cold theme. So what of the post-it notes for 2024? We just need a few simple decisions this year. Last year, three simple decisions achieved a 34.25% return from the strategy portfolio which compared to the ASX 200 up 7.8%. So looking to do the same thing, if I can achieve 34.25% this year, then 2025 will be obvious. All I need do is open a hedge fund, raise a billion dollars, rinse and repeat. Chances of that very low. But The target this year is simply to beat 10% with as low risk as possible in the strategy portfolio. And let's see if we can do that and do better than the market and do better than 10% if possible. So what's going to take us there? Well, we're in the reaction game, not the prediction game. I've been 41 years in the stock market now, and it takes a while for the penny to drop. But one of the pennies is that vigilance works. Just getting up in the morning and making decisions every day rather than predicting what's going to happen is proving to be a solid strategy. So you don't need to predict. We don't need to guess what's going to happen this year. We just need to assess what is going on at the moment and when it changes. And hopefully through that, be able to time the market, time themes, time stocks. As we stand at the moment, there was a bit of a wobble whilst we were on the break as bond yields started to rise again. They've started to come off again, thankfully. Have a look at the chart in my section of the US 10-year and Aussie 10-year bond yields. That big pivot point that started in November 
continues. Bond yields are still falling, as I say. They ramped up just over the New Year period, wobbled the market, but they're on trend again. Bond yields dropping again. And that, I think, provides a pretty good backdrop to the equity market at the moment, or generally. Last year, we spent the whole year debating when interest rates would peak. This year, we're almost certainly going to spend 12 months debating when they will be cut. The unknowns in that are whether inflation has a resurgence or whether inflation drops precipitously, what happens geopolitically, what happens to things like the oil price, and that will push bonds around. But this endless chatter about bond yields, interest rates, what central banks do will continue, it's inevitable. But I think if we are going to be talking about when interest rates are cut, then the odds are in our favour in equities as long as that continues. It could change at any time, but I think the backdrop for the moment as we start the year If that's the narrative, when will rates be cut, is quite good. Another driver in the short term is the US earnings season, which has just started. US companies are reporting for the end of their financial year, December 31st. Usually the results season, which is going to accelerate this week, investment banks this week and big tech starts next week and the week after. But the results season in the US is generally a positive, and you might imagine that after two months of interest rates falling, bond yields falling at least, if official rates aren't falling, with bond yields falling for the last couple of months, you might just find this results season some of the corporates, especially with the rising financial markets, some of the investment banks and some of the corporates might be somewhat more optimistic on their outlook statements than they have had any excuse to be in the last four quarters. So let's see if that comes through. But the earnings season is generally a positive. Let's see if it is. The other most interesting part, of course, is whether we can get another kick in big tech. We've been playing that last year through LNAS, NDQ and FANG in the strategy portfolio through ETFs. And ready to jump on that theme again if it continues. For the moment, the Nasdaq's looking okay, has to be said. As I say, it had a bit of a wobble. The moment bond yields start to go up, the Nasdaq starts to go down. Bond yields going down again, Nasdaq's going up, short-term stuff. So the big backdrop is to do with interest rates, but the little backdrop is to do with earnings and particularly to do with hype. I think it's unlikely AI is going to get hyped up. I do think it is a business stream, not the messiah One day it's going to be a commodity, but it'll be interesting to see whether the hype can re-hype over the results season or whether it just matures as it has been more recently. So watching the earnings to see how the investment banks go and watching the earnings to see how big tech does, as well as watching to see how industrials generally are doing. Another variable this year is going to be recession or no recession, how deep a recession, whether there or when there is a recession in the U.S., and the rest of the world and what that does, particularly for resources. The other variable this year or the other driver we could look back on at the end of this year, it seems almost inevitable, is the US election. It's already beginning to squeeze out the stock market headlines in the top news sections of Reuters. And there is a very good chance we're going to be overwhelmed or the media is going to be overwhelmed by Trump headlines once again, as has happened this morning. Trump seeks early victory in Iowa caucus as Republicans brave cold and snow. His presidency exhausted us with its unpredictability. We never knew what stock market related headline we were going to wake up to tomorrow. So prepare to be exhausted by his presidency this year. But I have to tell you when, as you already know, when Trump got in, 
Last time he was pro-business, pro-tax cuts, pro-corporates, and it was very good for the stock market. As tiresome as the Trump media is, it's going to add volatility this year, I think. Then there are other themes. There are always themes that need to be timed. Things like the lithium theme, the gold price, iron ore China, global growth, and how they impact on BHP, Rio, and Fortescue. The Australian property market is a big theme. I think that is improving quietly, slowly, which is good for consumer discretionary financials, good for everything, really. But the Australian property market doesn't want to see any shocks this year. It should continue to creep higher as interest rates creep lower. And the other sector, which doesn't really need to be traded, but you've got to ask every year, a lot of you will be asking, are the banks safe this year? I think a solid property market is good for banks. Property market is their foundation and provides a reassuring backdrop for income investors. You'd only really hold the banks for income. The trade we had in CBA, we traded CBA at the bottom of the market there, made 14.6% in less than two months. Not sure that's going to repeat. We have close that trade in the ideas section. The bank sector, see the chart in my section, is sitting top of the range. So not sure you're going to make a bunch of capital out of banks, but looks like safe income this year if the property market behaves itself. And that would be the assumption, I think, at the beginning of the year for this year. CBA is the best income stock possibly in the world and certainly in the sector, even though every broker has a sell recommendation on it. They always have a sell recommendation on it. But it's low volatility stuff. No need to sell the banks, even though they're top of the range. CBA has results and dividend coming up, of course, a reason not to sell it, even though we sold our trade. The other sector is the energy sector. The oil price is volatile. It is a sector that needs to be timed. At the moment, we're holding Woodside in the ideas portfolio. The oil price is punctuated by geopolitical events, otherwise by OPEC decisions. OPEC seem committed to keep the price up in the face of natural oversupply from other members. Just another one of those themes in the Australian market that need timing. So we will do our best to do that this year. But for the moment, in the strategy portfolio, the message is feeling pretty comfortable. Let's see what the earnings season does with big tech. Big tech has to perform for the US markets to perform. We'll get an idea of that over the next couple of weeks. But in the strategy portfolio, you'll see we're holding HNDQ, IHVV, and those are exposed, obviously, to the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. We're also holding A200, which is the ASX 200 ETF, happy with that, and still holding, whilst bond yields come off, still holding SLF, which is the ASX 200 REITs ETF. Today, as I mentioned, we have started a section which we will do each day on the growth portfolio and the income portfolio. Just to start with the growth portfolio, we have had a chat about what growth investing is all about. You might imagine, and we would naturally start with the assumption that it means we're going to buy stocks that are high ROE, high PE, low yield, high earnings growth. But once you filter for that, you end up in a very small group of stocks in the ASX 200. And many of them don't have any fundamentals at all. We are redefining the growth portfolio to mean, well, one definition we thought of was not income, anything else. But it's not just growth stocks. It's not just high PE, high ROE, low yield, high earnings growth stocks. Growth in our definition is 
chasing capital returns. So we are looking to grow the value of the portfolio. That's our definition of growth. It doesn't mean buying growth stocks. So anything goes really, but we will focus on larger cap stocks with less volatility. And we are targeting medium term, not short term themes and trends. As you'll know, last year, we abandoned our benchmark bias, which was the chicken little way that almost all fund managers manage their funds. The chicken little way, which is to hold all the major stocks in your benchmark in some weighting in your portfolio. That's what we were doing. We have cleaned all that up. We've got ourselves down to 20 stocks from I think we were almost 40 at one point. We've got ourselves down to 20 stocks. It makes the management a lot easier. I'd prefer less stocks than that, quite honestly, but 20 will do for the moment. And the good news is if you have a look at all the stocks we hold, they are all doing rather nicely. We've got no howlers in there at all. We did cull some of the howlers, of course. But the performance of this portfolio has been pretty good over the last year, up 10.6% against the ASX accumulation index, up 6.2%. That's in the last 12-month period from today. And it's been performing pretty well this year so far. So the message is less stocks, more focused, not benchmarking and chasing growth in the value of the portfolio rather than necessarily growth stocks. In the last three months, by the way, there are only two stocks that have not outperformed the market in the last three months, Technology One and BHP. But we've had absolute flyers. JB Hi-Fi up 28% in three months, Paladin up 40% in three months. Uranium's a hot theme at the beginning of the year. If you were to talk about small caps, then uranium is where it's at at the moment. I can see some fund managers selling Paladin at the moment because it's gone up. We're still holding until the trend ends. The trend hasn't ended yet. Can't really talk about value in this sector. I know sensible investors would be looking at Paladin and wondering why anyone would go anywhere near it on a value basis. But maybe that's what growth investing is about, a combination of sentiment and trend rather than necessarily fundamentals. Anyway, growth portfolio going okay. It will be addressed each day. You'll see our new tables today in my section. Income portfolio as well. We are holding at the moment 32 stocks. That's far too many for most members, especially new members will come and look at the income portfolio and say, really, what do I actually buy? Well, we are going to cull the number of stocks this year, at the beginning of the year, soon as we can. And we are going to reweight into stocks with high yields that are trending in the right direction and don't offer much in the way of volatility. So we will get the list down to a tighter number. 20 would be nice from 32. And we'll also up the weightings, particularly in the banks, to try and raise the average yield of the income portfolio. So that's to come. You'll see a few more notes of interest on the income portfolio in my section today. That leaves us with the ideas portfolio. As I say, Woodside and Telstra are only holdings in the ideas portfolio at the moment. Woodside we're holding. Don't trust the oil price trend, but it's highly correlated. Woodside's highly correlated to the oil price, obviously. Not doing us any harm yet, but holding Woodside. And Telstra was boring us, but it has begun to take off a little bit. It was about 375 at the bottom of the market. It's just over $4 now. So picking up, not doing us any harm. It's actually got a MACD buy signal. It's not really a trade, is it? Why we bought it was to highlight that it was bottom of its long-term trading range and was yielding over 6%, which is a bit of a rarity for Telstra. 
So we were trying to time the bottom. We've got that right. But as far as trading ideas are concerned, it's low volatility. So we might turf it out at some point. But for income investors, yes, we caught the bottom. Yes, I'd keep holding it. For now, trends are friend. As I say, MACD buy signal still holding. We need more ideas. Haven't got there yet. Can't do everything on one day. In our one-stock portfolios, we've also moved these into our trading section. Macquarie's okay. Trending okay. Investment bank results in the U.S., okay so far let's see how it develops and it is the stock market stock if you think about it and the stock market is rising we're pretty comfortable with the market at the moment and if the stock market's rising so is the earnings backdrop for macquarie rising as well most of their money is earned on percentages on asset prices and asset prices going up so trending okay holding macquarie in the macquarie one stock portfolio and bhp this is our one mistake whilst i have been away was not to sell BHP at the top there. We were looking very dandy with BHP close to $51. It's now back to $46. So we've lost almost 10% of our gain there. Resources have come off the top. Iron ore price has been going down, but sector's looking a bit oversold, if anything, now. We should have sold it, missed the selling point. And now, unfortunately, I'm doing what so many investors do. It's the biggest mistake you can make, I think, which is holding and hoping in a stock that's falling anyway. Holding and hoping in BHP at the moment, not ideal. Let's give it a day or two. Great shame, it came alive there for a minute. We were up over 10% on the portfolio as a whole and on the recent purchase, and now we're up 2.8%, so a bit disappointing. In the technical section, S&P at an all-time high, uranium showing no sign of stopping. Paladin, 11-year high. Harvey Norman and Nick Scarley beginning to follow JB Hi-Fi, higher. And Warley's, which we sold recently, now oversold. Some sign of South 32 bottoming at the moment. Right, to finish the podcast each day, I'm going to do a little bit of education. And today, let me tell you about my holiday to the Gold Coast in 2001, September the 8th. I don't know whether you understand, but stockbrokers, one of the weirdest things about stockbroking is that individual stockbrokers, I'm not sure many of them understand this or understood it or that I understood it when I was a stockbroker, but you are essentially uninsured. You sign a piece of paper with the stockbroking house, which says, I will cover all of my clients' errors. Everybody had an errors account. Some of them had hundreds of thousands of dollars of errors. That's when you put an order in at the wrong size or the wrong price, have to close it out. Murphy's law was that errors always go against you. So we all had errors accounts. And the broking house would take our commission off us until we covered our errors. The other thing we had to cover was settlements. If our clients didn't settle, we'd signed a piece of paper which said we will settle on their behalf, personally settle on their behalf. Now, the insurance taken out by the broking house would cover the broking house, But it had a very large excess from memory, something like $250,000. And it covered the broking house, didn't cover the individual dealer. And we signed a piece of paper which said we would make good on any losses the broking house had from us taking orders from clients that didn't settle. I know one broker who took a $600,000 loss on a client not settling. Can you believe that? And the problem at the time, whilst most people thought they were insured by the broker's insurance. The truth of the matter was the broker was insured, not the individual was insured. So every time we took an order, we were putting ourselves at risk because the client had three days to come up with the money. 
Originally, I think they had five days to come up with the money. So if they bought $100,000 worth of XYZ, they had five days to come up with the money. So until they came up with the money, and a lot of clients would think, I'll only hold it, or I will hold it for less than five days, so when I sell it, it will cancel out. Gambling that they would make money. So you had people with small amounts of money gambling with far more money than they could cover, And essentially, if they couldn't cover it, often without knowing, the dealer that took the order would be personally covering the client, can you believe it, without really realizing. So, back to September the 8th, 2001, I'm on holiday on the Gold Coast. I have just taken an $80,000 order, which is as yet unsettled, in Qantas call warrants. Remember call warrants? Not many people trade warrants these days, but... It was a way of getting leverage into stocks. So I have taken a trade, and I'll tell you his name, because if you can find him, I still want to talk to him. Nick Iadanu, missing a thumb. I wonder why. Put on an $80,000 order, or I took an $80,000 order in Qantas call warrants three days before 9-11. I'm on holiday on 9-11, and... I'm thinking, oh, I don't have much in the stock market. I'm not losing any money when the market fell over. When New York market closed, goodness only knew what it was going to do when it reopened, what the adjustment was. Everything would just get marked down with no opportunity for anyone to sell anything. And of course, it was an aeroplane hitting a building. So what do you think the Qantas share price did on 9-11? Well, I can tell you it absolutely collapsed. And this $80,000 worth of Qantas call warrants went to a value of zero. And the client still hasn't paid the $80,000. So suddenly it dawned on me on holiday in the Gold Coast with my three and five-year-old daughter that I had to settle my client's $80,000 trade. And let me tell you, if you think I had a problem, some of the other brokers had a massive problem with other clients in other trades that were unsettled. And it would have been okay owing $80,000, except that I had a mortgage, two kids, one on the way. And after tax, it effectively wiped out a year's worth of earnings. So I started making phone calls. Nick Iadanu's Mobile phone rang out, never to be answered. Home phone, we used to have those in those days, rang out, never answered. I actually found myself standing at his front door with legal documents in an envelope to hand to him. And I could hear him behind the front door going shh to his kids. He left me high and dry for $80,000 plus in my humble opinion, another $80,000 worth of financial stress, a ruined holiday, and a lesson in why there is so much paperwork in stockbroking to protect the individual dealer when he sets up a client. So if you think there's too much paperwork in our industry, keep it to yourself because you won't get a hearing from me. The reason we do the paperwork is to protect ourselves, not to make it difficult for clients. Anyway, can you believe it? I am now holding a bunch of worthless Qantas call warrants that were worth $80,000 at a total loss with a client that has disappeared. And do you remember what happened next? What happened next was Ansett went bust. What happened when Ansett went bust? The Qantas share price came ripping back. 
And eventually, I managed to close these call warrants out for a loss, which wasn't $80,000. I think it was something like twenty dollars or $30,000. And we have gone well over the settlement period by weeks. And then, can you believe it, the Qantas share price gets back to the call price and Nick Iadanu gets on the telephone, rings me up and says, I'd like to sell those Qantas warrants. You can imagine the noise in the dealing room that day as I told Nick Iodano what he could do with his Qantas call warrants that had already been sold. Anyway, this is supposed to be an educational piece. The education from this is that everything in the stock market is absolutely fine until aeroplanes hit buildings. Those one-in-a-decade events, which are supposed to be one-in-a-lifetime, but they happen every 10 years, Those one-in-a-decade events will change your life. And if you have to factor in the possibility that the New York Stock Exchange is bombed, a nuclear device is let off in Washington, the British pound is held to ransom by George Soros, then you would probably do things differently. So if I'm going to extract a piece of wisdom from the story, it is that you should always factor in the possibility that the New York Stock Exchange disappears and opens a week later and what that would do for your setup. And it affects who you deal with, where you keep your money, whether you put all your stocks in one place, whether you put all your money in one stock whether you put all your money in the stock market. Always got to keep in the back of your head the possibility that the once-in-a-decade event is going to happen. I have a friend who is extremely cautious about the stock market. He has all his money in investment vehicles related to the property market and has all the money spread over a number of different investments and schemes and seems happy with his 8% to 10% return per annum. And it is of some frustration to his spouse that he isn't more adventurous. But I can tell you one thing about him. He has never cocked it up. So that's my wisdom for the day. Always think about that once-in-a-decade event happening tomorrow. That'll do you for today. A shabby day it is. Uranium, the only story in town. ERA's up 17%. Rio is down 1.8% uninspired by its production numbers. The market is down 94, or was down 94 at worst, down 77 at the moment. Every sector down. Telstra about the only top 20 stock that's up. Lithium stocks down. Uranium stocks up. That'll do you for today. Welcome back to 2024. Let's hope we get it right this year. You have a good day. I'll be back tomorrow. Oh, 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 o